You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Uh, today we have a wonderful double header. Uh, we have both Ray Lane and Ron Bloom here. Ray Lane is a partner at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers, and Ron Bloom is the CEO and founder of Podshow. And uh, I'm going to interview them today. Uh, the focus is going to be on the relationship between a founder of a company and the venture capitalists who invest in them. So, welcome. Thank you. Great. So the first question I want to ask both of you is, um, you both have had really interesting and exciting careers. And instead of my introducing you and uh, sort of telling a story that probably isn't so accurate. I'd love each of you to tell a little bit of background of how you ended up on this stage here. How long do you have? Uh, <laughs> as long as you want. You want me to go first? Uh, so um, I've spent my entire career in uh, technology. Uh, born and raised on the East Coast, uh, grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, educated in Pittsburgh and West Virginia, went to West Virginia University in Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I still have an association with Carnegie Mellon today. I'm on their board of trustees, so I'm a, I'm a rooter for Carnegie Mellon and, uh, and Stanford Partnerships, if we can generate them. Uh, but uh, focused uh, early on uh, computer science technology, IBM, EDS, spent uh, 12 years with Booz Allen as a senior partner there running the information technology practice. And then, uh, and then I spent eight years as president of uh, Oracle. And I left Oracle in 2000 and uh, joined Kleiner Perkins uh, and uh, have been for the last six and a half years investing in startup companies in information technology, software primarily, services, and in uh, clean tech. So um, it's an interesting new area for, for the venture industry. Uh, and, uh, and Kleiner Perkins is, in the last several years, really focused on it. I'd say 40% of our resources are now focused on clean tech, so making investments in solar companies, in uh, you know, electricity generation and storage, in biofuels, and, uh, and then I'm on a board of a coal gasification company that produces natural gas to the pipeline by gasifying coal in a single step. So. That's as short as that I can do it. That is really <laughs> impressive uh, so, for that mm -hmm. amount of time. Great. So, Ron. About 180 degrees opposite <laughs> of, of Ray. Uh, I was raised in Atlanta and uh, attended Georgia State University to study philosophy. But my early career was as a musician. Um, I've written and produced over 300 songs that have been published, played on over 2,000 albums. Uh, and began to get interested in technology after building a couple of recording studios. My last one I built with Chuck Norris as a partner in Los Angeles. And building that studio, I came upon this technology called Fast Fourier Analysis, which is now called sampling to the uninitiated in Fast Fourier Analysis, and realized that we could use the internet to exchange uh, files as we were trying to develop this software. And I, I discovered what software was as a musician uh, and that I needed it as a, uh, to help me with my tools. Um, I sold my studio, I heard about this thing called the Internet, uh, and decided to create a, a, a concept called a cybercast. And the idea of a cybercast came from uh, a thought that I had that somehow the Internet, television, and radio 
could work together to create information and entertainment rather than one displace the other. This was in 1994. I needed a project in order to uh, demonstrate how a cybercast might work, so I, can, I had worked on some Grammy projects as an artist. I convinced the uh, guy, who, the fellow who ran the Grammys at that time, Mike Green, to go ahead and give me the license to create a cybercast for the Grammys. I asked around if anyone else knew what the Internet was, and you'd be surprised in 94 how many people said no. I found a guy who had just left MTV. His name was Adam Curry, a VJ, and, and a VJ and a guitar player put together a company to cybercast the Grammys in 94. Just for fun. Just for fun. I want to tell fun. Adam this. Okay. How many of you have heard of Adam Curry? <coughs> uh, I was hoping it would be none of you, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, even he's getting too old yeah, for this, this population. Yeah. <laughs> we come around again. We get, we get uh, reused like that bioenergy. Um, we, uh, this might be just an interesting quickie, and that is that we thought uh, uh, that we could create a lot of noise around an idea, which we did. The noise was tremendous and positive. The Grammys was a big success. Uh, we turned a tired brand into a live brand. We brought it to uh, every college campus, in the, basically, that was connected to the M-Bone at that time pretty big deal. We thought that that would create so much noise that every entertainment organization in the world would want to do business with us and we would become successful people. Uh, part A was right. We got attention, but Part B was exactly wrong. Uh, no entertainment company wanted to have anything to do with us because they feared the innovation that was created by this concept of bringing entertainment on to the Internet. What we did discover is companies who own the brands that were losing audience were very fearful of losing their audience because that's their blood. And at the boardroom of these companies, not at the bottom level, but at the very top level, innovative people were asking the CEOs of these companies, what are you doing about the Internet? And when they looked around, they decided they would call some people. We were only one of the few people you could call. In 95, we changed our business model to, to building entertainment for corporate customers, and they became these things called websites that you know about today. Uh, and uh, we created all the entertainment ourselves, as well as the back-end systems necessary to deliver it because there were no existing platforms on the Internet. So we created, without realizing it, uh, online databases, online catalogs, uh, integration with legacy systems like SAP and legacy computer systems, and that's how I was educated in the world of hardware and software. We took that company public in 1996, built that by 1999 to $150 million in revenue, and we did $500 million in Internet advertising sales between 96 and 99 and sold that in which I retired and tried to help a lot of other companies as an advisor, not as good a one as Ray has been to me, I guess. But those companies did okay. Started a business again. Uh, every six months I met up with my same partner from that original company. We decided that now was the time to try something different. This is about two years ago. And the first move we made was to not make the original mistakes we'd made. Our, our motto was not the same mistakes, only new mistakes. So one of the early mistakes I made was bad board. And... Um, Fortunately, through some relationships, we were able to meet guys like Ray, who have changed that one to a positive for us. Well, that's pretty impressive for both of you. Now, you've lived these parallel, non-intersecting lives. How did you end up meeting? So through a mutual acquaintance, uh, the jury, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so a partner at Bear Stearns called me one or sent me an email. <laughs> well, I guess sent a couple of us at Kleiner Perkins an email and uh, and... I read all my email myself. I don't have it, you know, filtered or anything like that. And so I was going through this one day, and I said, "This is interesting. Podcasting, the world of podcasting. I, I don't know if I actually was. I, I really wasn't into podcasting. I wasn't thinking about. It, 
but the idea itself, I thought, this could be intriguing, uh, depending on what these guys are doing with it. And so, uh, I don't know, it may have been, I don't know how fast I responded or anything, but I, I, within reasonable time, I said, you know, let, let's find out some more about this. And I may have asked one of our associates to do that. But, uh, but basically, I, I took a personal interest in it and in saying, I think this could be interesting, and, uh, and, and reached out and said, why don't you come, you know, send me a plan or, or come in and see me. I can't remember exactly what it was, something like that. And, um, and uh, so that's, you know, that's how we met. So it, this is a unique opportunity we have to have the entrepreneur and the VC who invested them sitting in the same room. And uh, we can hear the story from both of you. What was the process like of making that decision to invest or your decision to let them invest? Um, you know, was this a long drawn out process? Was there a lot of vetting that went on? Uh, maybe you could each tell a little bit of your perspective on what happened. Well, he just told a very vanilla story of how we met, <laughs> which I thought was pretty good um, uh, and, and nicely done. Um, uh, when we decided to raise money, um, there's two things that happen when you decide to raise money. You give up control of the process or you take control of the process. And, that's where your life changes. Either one can work, but if you give up control, you're surrendering it to someone else. We had a little more experience, so we decided to maintain control. We made a list of the people, not the agencies or groups or investors we wanted to speak with, but the individuals um, from the top firms that we thought we might speak to all on the East Coast. That's who I knew at that time. Uh, this gentleman, a mutual acquaintance, said, why don't you try Silicon Valley? And I said, well, I've been out there a few times. Totally do not relate to us. They don't understand media. They think of everything as an enterprise. Uh, absolutely. Ron was living in Miami. Yeah, I was living in Miami. Most of my work had been done on the East. This gentleman in the middle said, you should just write down on the list the people you'd like to speak to. And Ray Lane, I wrote on that list. I said, this is a guy who's run businesses. He's made big decisions. He's taken turnarounds. He's, he's, he's encountered in his world the same thing I've encountered in my world. I would rather have his advice and some other media guy who has worked part-time for AOL and thinks now they're a media guru. So we sent out these emails to the top six firms only and only to the individuals in those firms. The individuals, 100%, the six, came back and said, yes, we'd like to meet with you, and all of them turned it over to an assistant. Whereupon I sent back an email that said, no, thank you. Uh, if I wanted an assistant, I would have called your assistant. I'm only interested in you, and uh, no problem. We'll see you next time around, except for Ray Lang. Ray Lane took it upon himself to see some of this dialogue and said, you know, I, I, I feel something's going on here. If you'll make the trip, I'll give you the time. And um, my partner and myself came out here and uh, presented to Ray and the people he brought in the room. But we focused from the day one, the filtering process for us was to find a person who understood what was going on in his organization that we could count on to make a rapid decision for us. Yes or no was fine, but all that googly mook that's in the books. For me, it doesn't work too well. We just wanted to find a powerful thinking person inside their organization, and we were very, very fortunate to he find did, Ray. He did not tell me I was being targeted. He had, I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea, but this all came out after we made the investment, and he said, you know, let me tell you the story. So then that's why I heard that story, is after we invested, and he said, I really wanted, because he, I didn't realize Ron had had as much experience in kind of the IT world, in the software world, so I thought, he was coming from a world, both he and Adam, from the kind of media, music, entertainment world, 
and I didn't think had a lot of familiarity with the kind of IT. So I didn't talk a lot about, I mean, to me, I didn't think Oracle had much, re you know, relevance and, you know, in all the world I competed in. And, uh, and, it, and it turns out he knew everything there was to know about, about me. And he said, I, 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 you know, I think this would be a good fit. And, um, and so I, and, and it has been a, it has been a great fit. What I saw on the other side was I had seen probably two or three podcasting companies were just starting to get interested in uh, this, this whole world of uh, podcasting, which has now morphed its way into something much, much bigger. It's not about podcasting. But uh, I'd seen a couple of uh, early stage ventures, one out of the campus here, and uh, most of these, well, all of these ventures were uh, young entrepreneurs who had, uh, were engineers and had focused on producing a directory or some kind of service that will allow you to find podcasts and maybe even make a few of them. They were way beyond that. Uh, so there were two things. They, they, to them, the directory and the tools necessary to build a podcast were almost commodities to get to a, an end game. And both of them came from the business. So they knew the end game. They knew the end game was entertainment. The end game was to build audience, uh, to to insert advertising and all that, but not. It wasn't a technical thing. It wasn't a you know I'm going to design it and build it and they will come. It was much more. We understand how this business works, and the internet is simply a medium for what, by which we create or shift audience, and and we really like that approach. That that's what I saw that said this is it rather than uh, you're kind of you know, engineering approach or computer science approach to building a directory or a, you know, some kind of a podcasting service. Well, maybe that's a good time for you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, Podshow and what you're trying to do. I spent some time on the site exploring and it was uh, very entertaining. And uh, I'd love to know sort of where you are in the stage of development, where you see it going and sort of what your vision for this is. Okay. Uh, in, nine, in 2004, I made a statement that was within five years, over 50% of all content consumed would be created by other consumers. So this is what I call the 550 prediction. And it, and it is coming true faster than I had predicted and other people had talked about it. But what happens is that's a sea change. And one of the things Ray and I relate to is what, what events happen in society or culture that create ripples in communication or ripples in health or ripples in, in, in history of any kind. And this is a big, big change in the way entertainment works. Ron told me this before anybody ever heard of YouTube, you know, or, or MySpace, or, you know, uh, I guess we had invested in a social networking company, we had invested in Friendster, but, but still, we, you know, we weren't focused on user-generated content as much as when you kind of said, that's what it's going to be, and of course we didn't believe you, but. I have to interrupt. Apparently, one of you has a cell phone on, that's on, uh -huh. and it's, Interfering with the studio Oops. audience being able to hear. Oops, sorry. So I just, just got, call home. <laughs> got word of, from our uh, technical it's team. Just take it so, great, thanks a lot. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Is, is sorry. That, yeah. has it been? You know what? If they don't scream and yell, is it fine now? We're okay now. Okay, thanks. That could have been another so. deal. <laughs> a missed opportunity. Yeah. It was a competitor. Yeah, don't worry. No <laughs> okay, so go on. Uh, Podcho believes, and we at Pacho believe, that there's a new ecosystem necessary 
to take advantage of this sea change in the way entertainment is created and consumed. And, it, and that ecosystem will not be incredibly different from entertainment as we know it today, but requires a fresh start, a restart, a reboot. And the pieces of that ecosystem are a platform for the creation and delivery of the stuff. That's something that all engineers seem to understand. That is a price of admission, not really that much of a differentiator, but a methodology for having people put that content on there, which is called a license, which is something few engineers correctly understand. Uh, willing content creators who will give license to you for you to do something with their content. Audience who believes that that content is valuable and therefore consumes it. And advertisers who trust you to, to piggyback them on the relationship between the audience and the content. I just described any media ecosystem you would ever point at. So we believe that we needed to create that whole ecosystem, some of it, give it away, and, and figure out where we stood in that pile. And where we think we stand, where we stand today is, we want to be the place you can go to find the very best content on the internet. We're going to create enough of it ourselves, so that you, we feel that we can offer you five or ten choices in every category. You're going to be able to get content on our site or through us, whether we have advertising rights or not. Any content from anywhere in the world will pass through the advertising of other people. And you can create your own, collect your own, or share your own. Uh, that's the vision of Podshow today. It's a really competitive landscape it's, now. It depends it's, on who your competitors are. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Um, who do you see as the biggest competitors? And you know, do you watch really closely what they're doing? And are, is it, are you kind of in lockstep, or are people taking big leaps? What, what's going on? Well, I, I believe that in, a, in an emerging market, that the majority of competition is low-hanging fruit. So mm -hmm. what you really want to do is look where you want to be and what you want to display. So we look at our competition as Rupert Murdoch or Time Warner, mm -hmm. and we aim at that level because the competition for us is for the audience, right? So we need to entertain our audience, we need to acquire our audience, and we need to give them something that other people aren't giving them. If that's who your customer is, our customer is our audience. Our customer is not our advertiser, our customer is not our podcaster then we are obligated to bring the best content and experience in the world to that audience. And if, if you live by that, then you go against other people whose customers are their audience and you get into the media companies of the world. So that's kind of where our landscape is. That's pretty competitive, but the trends of the mass exodus trends from traditional media give us an influx of opportunity that really, really is an amazing opportunity. So I'm, I'm pretty blessed. So, so Pacho is uh, doing far more creating far more than we ever thought they would at this, you know, we keep saying at board meetings, Ron, focus, 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 you're doing far too much. And there is a strategy behind it, but I think from the description Ron just gave, uh, it is, uh, I think the, the audience here could take away the impression of, well, if I want a podcast, I could probably find it on Podshow and I could download it. Or if I want a you know a, a video, I could I could maybe go there, but obviously there's other places to get video and everything. And I think if you could describe the kind of the social networking part of it, the kind of you know come to the network and share and be you know the kind of the social media concept that you you put together. So if you um, and I don't want to sell it because I just invite everybody to go try it and send me an email what you think, uh, Ron at Podshow. So don't worry about the selling part. Um, if if you, if you are a member of the Internet today, when, when the Internet started, you 
went to destinations. Today, you know, there's a trend where, the where you bring your destination with you. You come with your profile. You come with your identity. But what's changed in the last year or so is that the way that you express your identity is no longer with uh, some text. Now it's with some pictures. And now it's with music that you like. And now it's with something that you create. It's coming to be also with what you collect. So uh, a combination of a person wanting to express themselves through the content that they uh, influence and collect, along with a confluence of content out there, is what we are, a social media network. Unless you're me. I, you look at my profile, it's pretty boring. Yeah. It's pretty bad. <laughs> well, the thing is, you're obviously very passionate about what, what's going on at Podshow. And um, how do you end up working together? I mean, it's what's a typical dynamic between the, the entrepreneur and the, and the investor and uh, as a board member? What, how does that relationship work on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis? Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's my job. First of all, I, 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 confuse, I get confused with whether I'm a venture guy or an operating guy. I, mean, I, 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 I don't think, um, you know, whatever a venture capitalist does, I, I guess I do it, but I, that's not how I think about the company, okay? So I, and I think most of my partners think the same way. We think about building companies as opposed to investing in companies. So right from the beginning, we're thinking about how do we advantage this company into a big market, okay, and make sure that it, it just obliterates its competition. And so uh, how do we build the right team? How do we advantage it by giving really, really good people? How do we uh, make the right connections? So how do we, you know, call the right people, give them influence? Have, you know, have you heard of what, well, you probably don't know what Podshow is doing, but let me explain it to you. It might be an interesting partnership for you to, to open doors uh, for them. Uh, but basically, everything is around providing advantage to Podshow to win this market, and this market being a combination of social and media. So sharing your what you like with who you want to share it with. And so if... If you know if you have a profile on Podshow and you want to share it with your friend, or the friend wants to know what is it you're interested in these days, what do you actually watch and listen to, you can share it with them, like sharing, like you're a network in and of yourself. You, you are in the network, and I can so I can see it by digging you, you dig me, and you can basically share now, not just simply you know text exchange or pictures or you know go go this. I saw this interesting video, go download it, you know, go look at it. You can, basically you're sharing your, your life with people you want to share it with. And that becomes a social network for music, video, and podcast. I want to mention, I'm going to ask just a few more questions and then open up uh, the questions to the audience. So uh, make sure you start thinking about your questions now because you certainly will have an opportunity to ask them. So the company is just really still growing and very new in this space. Uh, what do you anticipate happening over the next few years? What's, what's the vision and the vision related to how you work together? Does your role end up changing as the company gets more traction? Before Ron talks about the vision, I think he's best about the vision, let me t tell you about the astounding results. Uh, so we, we got to know each other about a year and a half ago or yeah, about a, little a little over a year, year ago. ago. Over a year ago. And we thought, in, a, in one year, what can you accomplish? You're going to develop a lot, uh, so we have to provide the tools. We have to get 
the facilities necessary to handle the volume that we expect to, to, to come to the site. Uh, you know, we in no way predicted video would be as big as it, it was. Uh, there was this thing called PodSafe Music. Uh, if you're not, if you haven't delved into that world of basically artists that make incredible music uh, that are not signed by a label, it's, it's amazing. And Ron's taught me everything about that. But in one year, basically Podshow has been able to put up on the network about 3,000 shows, 4,000 shows? 5,000 now. Yes, I mean, every time I talk to them, it like, you know. So 5,000 shows, these are podcasters that make their own content. They basically make a daily, weekly, monthly show that, that uh, is, you know, 10 minutes to an hour long and about all sorts of content. And you can, so, so 5,000 shows, 60 million downloads a month. Um, and uh, and and advertisers that are big brand name advertisers that are now moving large portions of their advertising budget over to this new media world, and it and it's just way beyond my expectations to have been for for this team to have accomplished that in one year. Now he doesn't think it's enough. He he thinks that the next step we keep saying you know release it release it let it go let let's if you've been able to do 60 million downloads and get that many shows, let's just let it go and let's let's get in the millions and you know, and uh, and, and 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 really blow this thing. Up. And that's where the, the this vision comes of Ron's saying, "Not yet, Coach. Not yet. We're we're about to do it because they have built some of the best facilities for video podcasting and music." So you can get high-quality content and, and great user-generated content on this site, but the payoff is when you can now start putting it all together. So you can now talk about the yeah. future. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's why I'm lucky. Uh, first of all, he mentioned that I call him the coach. And uh, for those of you that are interested in a board member, I think you have to set a, a set of expectations for board members by planning on your dream board member, writing down the questions you want to ask, ask them. And I, have, I know none of my board members pri prior to their investment in this company, which is unusual. And um, I wrote as a rule, you know, a, a kill clause in our investment that Ray had to stay on the board. Um, because Ray is an operator for me, um, not that experienced in media, but a voracious consumer of something new and a person that when you have to grow, you ha you're struggling, you're trying to make a decision, a hire or a fire, or take money, don't take money, uh, risk your company to go to the left or right, it's a person you want to ask. And, and it doesn't matter if the background is from a different world or the same world, that experience is, is unprintable in anything else. You won't find it here at, the, at this campus. It's just it comes from people. We've made an acquisition already. So that was a decision that had to be made fast, executed fast, diligence done fast, get it done, get it behind it, because it's it's a huge diversion for a team that's trying to build something this, this fast. Was and why would a small company acquire? I mean, it makes no sense for mm -hmm. most people. But Was the acquisition for technology or people or a platform, content? Plat uh -huh. Technology platform uh -huh. and speed to market. So on that note, give us a picture of the company. Uh, how many people are there? What are they doing? What's the breakdown of how many people in technology development? How many people in marketing and sales? How many doing content development? What's uh, Two years ago, it was a 
blank startup without an office. We used to say our office was in Skypesville. And uh, we had six employees that we'd never met, all hired virtually on the internet. Uh, all six of them still work the, for the company full time. When we met uh, Ray and the team and raised money out here, we decided to headquarter in San Francisco. Uh, rather than New York or Los Angeles media capital because we thought we'd stand at a better, a better chance. We stood a better chance to be a media capital provider right here. So here we're kind of big fish. We know this business as good as anyone out in this area. We now have 100 people in our office here in San Francisco uh, in, up in Soma and another 50 to 100 scattered around the globe. We have a sales office in New York and a sales and production office in London. We have a distribution deal with British Telecom, our exclusive distributor in the UK. So if you go to Podshow UK, it'll actually be BT Podshow. Uh, we have platforms rolling out for mobile and IPTV, which I think Ray was alluding to. Uh, as taking the internet as the centerpiece of creating and building the model for controlling and distributing content and using, if the audience is indeed our customer, we have to go get them with our content where they live. So uh, it's a relatively fast growth. We did about 50, 60 million downloads in uh, December. We're growing about 30 2% month over month in downloads. Um, the revenue we anticipated for 2007, we did in Q4 of 2000. And the revenue we anticipated for 2006, we did in Q4 of 2005. So we're pretty much ahead of revenue. We're also ahead of spend. Don't be shocked to go to a board meeting and someone says, what happens if we spend more money? Can you grow faster? And, and don't be afraid to say, well, wait a minute, which Ray is talking about. And then they say, well, slow down, and you're going speed up. So I have a dynamic with Ray I think is very important, um, kind of a mutual admiration. That, uh, you want to speed up on the top line and slow down on the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> or slow down uh, on the expense line. And there's rules, you know, I call it the 210 rule. You, make, you, make, you have five or six people, seven people in the company. You stress, you stress. If you have a product that's good at all and you really care about making money, maybe you generate a million and a half to two million bucks. And then... Um, you think, wow, now I need to hire two more engineers, but now I need someone to answer the phone if I get the engineers. Whoops, if I need one, someone to answer the phone, then I probably lost my assistant. Now I need an assistant. Oh, by God, I need someone to help with the finance. Better turn the sales over. And all of a sudden, you've got to go make $10 million before you see the light of day. So we're trying to blow past those decisions. Those are cycles we've seen. We have some experience. And just focus. our focus is on where our customer is going. And our customer, which is you, is moving really, really fast. You're not doing the same thing you were six months ago. You're not doing the same thing you were. You don't consume like you did three months ago. Every day you're discovering a new site. Every day you're discovering some new widget or some new way to do something. And we have to stay at pace with you to such extent that when you want to lean back a little bit and gather yourself together that you'll think about Podshow. Great. Well, what do you spend your typical day doing? Obviously, this is things are moving so quickly that <clears> it probably isn't a typical day. But, you know... Is it sp management? Is it strategic thinking? Is it? Well, we have a, a lot of whiteboarding, uh -huh. and uh, we're a little bit farther along now. But uh, you you start with the, the holy triumvirate of product, you know, sales and service, and you keep messing with them. So now we have we're divided into um, sales, marketing, and biz dev. I have a guy that runs that, and we have uh, product and engineering, which are married in our company, which is interesting, and then we have production, which helps create the content, those three groups uh, come together in something we call rotation, which is very interesting. So rotation is the process by which we acquire content, promote it through our network, use it to spin up delight in the audience, kick it out the other end to meet an advertiser. And this is a media approach. So we're, we spend most of our day managing that rotation, meeting after meeting, 
and then uh, once every couple of weeks we hit the road with the sales and the sort of solicitation. And then um, when, when I first met Ray, I, I was actually thinking, man, this is going to be bad. I'm going to have to go, you know, once a week, I'm going to have to go and make a report. And boy, this is going to be a drag because this is Ray Lane and he's got to be wanting these reports. So I kind of slipped into his office. I said, okay, coach, you know, now we're signed up. We got the money. We're going. So you want to do it every, every Wednesday? And he goes, what? And I, you know, it's the meeting that you're going to want with me. Is it every Wednesday? He goes, are you crazy? Come, call me up when you have something to talk about. Because by the third Wednesday, realize, we're going to have nothing to talk about. I didn't realize I ran a $10 billion company without ever doing an operational review. I love this guy. Ever. So uh, I call Ray. You know, I, um, and every time I have a thought that is uh, interesting, that I want to bounce off somebody, even just to find another direction, which I call English, just to spin off Ray and go in another direction, or just direct input. I'll usually uh, call him. So he's my primary contact across the board, and the guy that I suck the energy out of most mm -hmm. of our, all of our board members. So you, one of the questions that we ask our students is, um, you know, when you build a, think about building a new company, do you, do you want to think about it as something that's built to last or built to flip? Is this something when you started, you know, that you think about the exit strategy at the beginning? Never do. Uh, none of our companies do we think about an exit strategy. Mm -hmm. So every company we invest in, if it's not going to be built to last, if mm -hmm. it's not going to uh, be an IPO, so that mm -hmm. represents some kind of exit, but, but we're going to build it to last. That is first priority. If we uh, invest in large markets, I mean really large markets with a huge network effect, so it builds a large company, our investors will be just, they will be fine. They'll be, they'll be happy. But, um, but they end up, the investors, our limited partners, Stanford of which is one, are actually lower priority than our entrepreneurs, our partners, and our families. And I would say that in front of, mm -hmm. which I just did, in front of our investors. Because um, they will make, they know they'll make money if we build large sustaining companies like Sun or Compaq or Google or Genentech or the, you know, Jupiter, Juniper and Great. Well, I guess that this audience probably is filled with lots of questions, so I want to open it up to those in the audience, and uh, we'll see what the students have to say. Josh. Sure. So that's a question for Ed. For Ed. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you get plenty of deal flow across your desk every day. So what was it about Ron or, and or about Pacho that was the deal breaker for you as far as investment? And we need to repeat the question for the okay, audience. Okay, so what, what was, I, I see a lot of, uh, uh, ventures uh, come across my desk, and what was it that was interesting about Podshow? Why, why did that make the difference? Um, it really was a combination of the, their vision of how they thought this business was going to uh, um, evolve, and they were half right. They were half right, but they were twice as right as anybody else I met. Now I can look back two years. I didn't know at the time. At the time, I thought they were 100% right because they were, and the second reason, they were media guys. They were entertainment guys that understood that the technology is simply a medium to get to that end, that end goal. And so, so I, that, that made sense. So, we, so we, a big determinant for us is do we bet, if we know we want to be in this market back then called podcasting, okay? Podca it's interesting. We don't use the term podcasting anymore. Pod is in our name. But simply because we like the name Pod Show, but the podcasting represents an audio feed that you can get through some kind of RSS or subscription service and all that. We do much more than that. 90% of our business is video now. A lot of it's music. 
and, and so it is much more a, a social network. Well, these guys have, uh, have watched the entertainment delivered and how it's evolving to young people, although I think the average age of our audience is in the young 30s, right? Mm, depends on the programming. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, but, but it's going to be primarily young people that are, that are aware of this. So you have to watch how that evolves and change with it. So we've blended video. Video became very, very important. Uh, and if we'd have, you know, so from an entertainment perspective, you got to do what the audience is buying. What is the audience listening to? What are they tuning into? If you're not going to be aware of that, then forget it. I, I didn't see how, how a young team that was developing technology for podcast directories and content creation, how they were going to understand that as well as these two, uh, Adam and, and Ron. So, so that made the huge difference to me. Thank you both for coming first. Um, I was wondering what have uh, what type of conflicts of interest have you seen as VC and founder, and what's uh, put the most strain on your relationship? What type of conflicts of interest? Uh, you know, I I actually I can't think of any that we because we would ne we would never invest in a competitor of Pacha. We don't invest in any. Uh, any competitors of a company we've already invested in, so that there would be no business conflicts. Um, where, you, where you typically run into conflicts is if you take money from someone who would invest in a competitor, and if it takes them a long time to decide they're not going to invest in a competitor, then I would suggest you think about that, how, what that means to you. Um, Ray and his team and his company and his group, they stand for something, so you know what they stand for. The second time, is in valuation uh, and discussions about valuation. But if you describe your company well enough and defend your vision well enough and you're also fair enough to the other side, then that doesn't conflict. If you raise ongoing rounds, that's where you also can run into conflict. I just think if you set it up at the beginning right, if you do a little work, homework about what's going to happen in the future, you sort of anticipate the dialogue and you talk with your investor, what's going to happen if this happens? What do you think about this? Also, if you're honest with yourself, if you're hitting the wall somewhere and you, what you thought would happen is not happening as well, you want to you have an investor who's a partner. And I, I think we've already we've gone to a bunch of those intersections together, and I think that we've just got a pretty good feel for each other and uh, trying to have some integrity. Yeah. So generally there are, there, there are no conflicts of interest. I'll give you one small thing that, that, that could, be, could occur all the time from the venture business. If you're an early, if you're an early stage venture investor, uh, you're taking you know, the most risk. I mean, so you're, you're <coughs> investing when, the te when you're still technical risk in the company. And so typically you're looking for a lot of ownership for a reasonable amount of uh, investment. If you're fortunate enough, now a lot of companies basically get modest, you know, say they're Series B, uh, get a modest uh, uptick in valuation uh, because they're coming maybe out of technical risk. They got, you know, one customer to try it at beta or something like that. And you, you know, but in this case, Podshow, their Series B had a huge up, uh, uptick in valuation. And so I've got to look at my job. Now I've got a bit of a conflict because on one side, I've got to support the company. And so I, he wants to be able to go out to other investors and say, Kleiner Perkins is behind me and Kleiner Perkins is investing and they still believe in the company. And even though the valuation is relatively high, they believe so much that they're going to make money that they're going to invest at this high valuation. When in fact, 
my venture side says we already own a lot of the company and it's smart of us to not take our pro rata because even though it will make money, we might make less than the 10 or 15x that we're looking for on the early money. And so I've got to balance those two things that are a bit of a conflict, but, but, but we did invest. Yes. I'm wondering, um, sort of the new ideas and solutions that's driving the, uh, your new your business model and strategies, do you go out and search for them, find them yourself, or are they coming to you? Like being, is there, are sort of interesting stuff being attracted to you, uh, coming to you without an effort? Is that the factor? Well, no, repeat the question. Um, do we attract business opportunities? Yeah. Do you go out and find them or are they, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff coming uh, to you now? Very, very important in my mind as a, as a business person to magnetize your company. And uh, we very successfully attempt, attempted to magnetize our company to four constituents. Uh, advertisers, we made a decision, only global brands. So if we decide, it's, it's nice to say we're going to do advertising, but if we would have determined not to take only global brands, the first brands in would have been crap brands, then the difficulty in attracting global brands would have been monumental as even the YouTube and MySpace are experiencing today. So we have uh, 60 global brands and basically no crap brands on our network at a cost of revenue. That was a decision we made. By having that group of global brands, we magnetize ourselves to more global brands. We magnetize ourselves to audience by passing through content even if we don't own it and passing through other people's advertising to make sure our audience is comfortable. A lot of people would say only our stuff on our network. To magnetize to uh, the producers, we try to give the top level producers a way to make the most money and everybody gets access to the network for free, so that's nice. The, to magnetize ourselves to engineers, interestingly enough, was the hardest part for me. Uh, because until we grew to a certain extent, we were bootstrapped in the kind of talent we wanted to bring in because we're defining an entirely new mental design engineering market space. So the DNA, as Ray likes to say, of our company really leaned toward the media side. And uh, the biggest challenge was leadership in engineering. We had a plenty of good rank and file. And 70% um, of our company is in development and product. But to find the right leadership who understood what we we're doing has been an ongoing, the most challenging of those four. Let me say uh, two things. If you walk into Podshow, you don't see your standard Silicon Valley company. You see people developing content. You see people, you know, figuring out how it will be listened to and how it'll be integrated. And you know, everybody's on headphones and everybody's watching stuff. I mean, it's just, it's a very um, interactive, live, open pit environment uh, for the way this, uh, the way this works. Um, the second thing is, you know, it is when he, when Ron first mentioned advertisers, that a lot of these global brands bring really boring advertising. So if you take advertising off of television or radio and try to put it into this medium, it doesn't work. And Ron and Adam are strong enough to say, you know, we don't want we want your brand, but let us help you develop cool advertising that people will listen to. Because if you just take, you know, like uh, the the, the the CEO of Daimler Chrysler, remember when he went on TV and he was doing these ads and he said, I'm, I'm the, you know, he thought that was really cool. It just wouldn't play on, on Podshow. And so you have to have, 
So we actually have gotten into things like user-generating advertising. Well, for the first time, I understand the Super Bowl is actually going to have some user-generated ads. Ron was doing that a year ago for, um, for um, Earthlink. Earthlink had some really boring ads. And a uh, good company, uh, but, but they had a contest. Uh, in fact, Adam's show, on Adam's show, had a contest for, and this lasted quite a bit of time, to make advertising for Earthlink and the, you know, number one, and number one ad, you know, the one that, the one they, they started using. So they're sounding a lot cooler. Well, now my favorite thing to do is set up Ron with some of the, you know, because I know a lot of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies that I've maintained relationships with, and I say, you know, they say, well, we're getting into this podcasting stuff. You know, we mentioned we've invested in a pod show, pod show or podcasting company. We're getting into that. We're doing a lot of podcasting. You know, Tina said, we're doing a lot of podcasting here at, at Stanford. And if you let Ron look at your podcasting, chances are he will tell you why it is probably not, other than just simply script that's put on, you know, some kind of digital media and streamed, you know, it's not entertaining. It's got to be entertaining if it goes into pod show, including ads. The ads have to fit the entertainment, you know, kind of genre. And so, um, so I, I think a big contribution pod show is going to make is to the development of advertising as content that you want to listen to. You know, it's the same way. We, love, we, we will, a lot of us watch the Super Bowl just for the ads, right? And it's that, con it's that concept. So. This year... We were, one of our um, biggest advertisers is GoDaddy. We created um, 60, they, they value a lifetime value of two to $500 per customer. Four months we created 60,000 customers for them. So it's a pretty interesting campaign. So we like them, they like us. They got a great product, which is why we can sell it and they're open-minded about how we sell it. They offered us an opportunity to influence their Super Bowl ad. The last Super Bowl ad we influenced was 1995 where we put two ads in the Super Bowl one for Oracle. And um, we had fun then, but we thought it was old, old school to influence a Super Bowl ad. Now it doesn't make sense for us. Everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing user-generated fake Super Bowl ads, we don't want to do that. We have to find something else to do. One of the greatest joys in the world as an entrepreneur is the ability to say no. And the minute you start saying yes to everybody and, tr and thinking there's a solution for everything, you're really messing yourself up because you get no respect in the community in which you're operating. So we, we spend a lot of time, and we're very proud of it, telling advertisers no. No, uh, I understand that you, that's how you want to do it, but it, our audience won't accept it. And um, sometimes we say, I tell you what, we'll run your camp we'll, let us do the campaign, we'll run it for free. If you don't like it, don't pay us. You can do a few of those. Sometimes we say, we will not accept your advertising and they'll come back in a month or a week or a year and double up. So, you know, just on the advice side, um, to have a little bit of self-esteem about the brand and the product that you push out to feel good about what you're doing is a passion that communicates to the people that, to which you're going to sell. Just curious on, on just what you just said there, if, if the goal is to become a bigger and bigger company and you guys have an approval process for your, for your, your advertisers, how does that um, process scale up as the business generates more and more content, more and more traffic? There's this very explicit sort of editorial approval process that you guys have in order to make sure that your, your advertisers are well placed. How do you, 
Well, I have a philosophy. Go ahead. You repeat the question. So oh, how do how we do you scale up if you are <laughs> exercising editorial constraint? If yeah. you're, you know, you know. Why do you exercise constraint in a marketplace? Because you want to create an environment that opposes some other methodology. Right now, the advertising online advertising marketplace is being driven by Google, which is having the absolute opposite effect, which is it was selling links which is driving, in many cases, down the value of advertising and created a CPM market. We looked at that market and realized that that is a really good market for creating a baseline relationship, but a really bad market for creating a branding relationship. So we said, if that's a bad market, who's going to have the good markets? Well, we think we have a pretty good market. Can we defend that claim? Yes, we have 50 million downloads. We have loyal users. Top 20% of our network does 80% of our downloads, which means we have deep, lasting relationships. We hit them again and again. It's not a one-off and one-off. So we go to a brand and we say, we go with a mentality that we want the brands to compete to be on our network. That will scale when you have $55 billion worth of advertisement spent on television and radio, and, it's, and the audience is decreasing at 30% per year, so there's the economies of, inverse economies of scale driving a decision-making process. Our gamble is that brands are going to want to connect with their audience, and if we can keep the quality of advertising, there's no law that says advertising, somewhere in the last 30 years, advertising and content bifurcated. And if you go back and study radio and television, it's the slot law that changed it. 24 minutes of programming, six minutes of advertising, syndication, if, you, if all of you study up on that, it's very interesting. The internet says we don't need that. Formats are, are transportable and transmutable. We can incorporate advertising any way we want, which gives advertising a chance to become content again. Brands realize that before advertising agencies, so you start by showing case studies. Uh, to do half a billion dollars in internet advertising as one company uh, and still have people lined up in the, outside the door, for example, is not going to be a problem. We also do our sales with a very small Salesforce, increasingly large numbers for smaller and tighter brands. Music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> we got a way to go, but we're working on it. You mentioned about the quality of the content that's on your site. Uh, when you're user generated, uh, it's uh, user is generating the content. The content may not be good quality. How does the balance happen? Well, the um, the audience. Uh, you want to know how do we understand if content has is good quality? Well, the social media network. Uh, in itself promotes what they think is what they think are, is good and identifies what they think is interesting. So content is good or interesting for a variety of reasons like life is. This, is, this piece of content is good for today because it's topical and it's stupid and I'm going to dispose of it. But on the other hand, this show is really interesting and I'm going to dedicate 30 minutes of my week each week to consuming it. We believe you should serve. This music is great so I'm going to follow this artist. Uh, all of that is in our content ecosphere. But the top, most powerful content on our network is led by uh, shows. And shows are what some people would call podcasts, but it is serialized content. So um, the audience, out of the 40, almost 5,000 shows on our network, the top 300 really do the meat of the business. We watch the other 4,000 or so, and we see what's beginning to percolate. As something looked good or interesting based on audience response or our in intuition, qualitative and quantitatively driven. We sick ourselves on that property, as we call it, that media property, and attempt to develop it. So we give, um, as, the, as the shows and programs are learning from each other, we also try to inject some fuel into them. We can also promote them across our network. 
So it, it is a qualitative and quantitative process that seems to be working now. We also produce, directly produce 40 or 50 shows and indirectly produce about 200 shows that we watch every week. They are managed by producers on our network that make sure that at the very minimum across the food chain we have a decent program in every category. that in the entertainment industry, um, sort of having a charismatic type of a leader tends to be a, a, an asset to, to a company. And uh, I think of even other non-media companies like, um, you know, Apple, Steve Jobs, or Google with Sergey and Larry. And thinking about um, sort of how you brand a company, a lot of that has to do with what people perceive the company as and how they perceive maybe the leadership in that company. I'm just curious if you could comment at all about um, where you see yourself as a leader and how you think your leadership style will influence the company. Where do I see myself as a leader and how do I think my leadership style? Uh, I want to say that I absolutely agree with your take that I believe in any company um, leadership has the opportunity to, to highly influence the way the company is perceived. Um, I think my number one role is vision. I have to be able to articulate it, and I have to be able to demonstrate it in a way that's typically at odds with the rest of the world. So I have to look for outspoken, arrogant ways to talk about the vision of the company. But if I'm lucky or fortunate or good or have good advice, I have to preload those statements with some sort of proof of concept that lets me back up what I'm saying. So just when people are getting irritated by the position, out comes in the case study and then another position and another case study. And my partner Adam and myself, uh, every speck of clothing, every photo op or every turn down of a speech, every acceptance of a place, every single thing, every message he does on his show, he has a show and I do not, uh, everything we do is calculated. Uh, not always gets the response we want. Controversy is great. I'm understanding it. Ray is getting a great uh, uh, experience and how that works. In the beginning, we used to have a little controversy. You'd call me right about it. About the third time, they go, "Hey, this controversy stuff's pretty cool." You know, the people so, are complaining about Podshow, and it's like they don't get it. No, no, that's that was planned, Ray. Don't worry about it. So, so you uh, <laughs> in a media company, that's important. But also, I think that this translates to any type of a business. Um, you have to, you have to understand that just because you believe in what you're doing, maybe. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that don't once you peel away the onion. But let's assume that you do, that somehow everybody else is busy. And um, Podshow has missions. Our mission is to be a board, uh, uh, to move the share price of our customers, our advertisers, to, to uh, be a boardroom decision, you know, right now. In a couple of years, that won't matter anymore. But right now, in an early stage company, you want to strive you want to know where you can fall in the meter. And for us, it's really, really important for someone to look at us and go, if I work with those guys, my personal success in my company is better, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to make the big move for my company. If not, they're going to do Time Warner, they're going to do AOL, they're going to do Yahoo, they're going to do Google. So I can't compete with those guys. I have to differentiate us. And as a leader, I try to do that. Uh, for my staff, we try to bring in culture that they help create. We, tr we, we are a family. We had 100, and, 100 people. We had 175 people attend our, our employee party at Christmas Eve. We didn't invite any, any even board members, really. We just kind of kept it at Christmas, I should say. Um, we break every Friday for Foo Bar Friday. 
This is something my partner and I have done for three companies now. Um, there, if anybody's Dutch, there's a word that I can't pronounce called boulige, which is this Dutch drinking thing that they do on Friday, which we stole from a business over there. We, everybody gets together, out comes the beer and wine and food, and we talk. Uh, we have a different version of stand-up meetings. We do everything. We experiment with different ways internally. Um, we put employees first and ask employees to put family first, and we drive everybody like type A. So that's kind of what we are. Uh, you mentioned before that uh, the early mistake you did was the bad board. So could you describe please what uh, differentiates uh, the uh, bad board from good board? Um, bad board from good board and one other thing, a great example is when we were building the company and I was trying to find the right leadership in engineering, I talked to Ray and I said how do we how do we do it? What are we, what are we missing and what are we doing here? And he, he said something that I use all the time, which is the first 10 or 20 people in the organization put a DNA stamp on the organization. And that permeates your next growth, whatever it is, to thousands or hundreds of thousands. So we tried to keep a hole around the, in, the lead of engineering to hold off that DNA decision for as long as possible until we just hired a guy that they vetted for me that I don't know if anyone else could handle this guy, but they vetted him and in five minutes, Ray called me up and says, hire him, I don't care what it takes, because he understood our DNA. That's a great example of getting some input from a board. I, 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 the, the public company board we had, um, we were busy already, we were very aggressive, we were growing. Not that they were bad people, but it was more like a rubber stamp. You talk and they would give some advice and the advice would be many of the things you might hear in school. You know, uh, make sure you stay focused. Are you sure you're not doing too many things at once? Um, how's, those, how's that cash flow going? You know, uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, if, if you need the board to ask you that, you're probably in a little bit of trouble. Uh, if you haven't had experience in running a company, then those are really interesting questions. Uh, our board is a healthy debate. We have a couple of guys that are more esoteric. They dream. John Doerr is a very interesting board member. It was Pod Show Podcast Network. He would say, it's not about... It's not about the audience, it's about the, pod, it's about the cast. Then it was, it's not about the cast, it's about the pod. Then it was, it's not about the pod, it's about the show. And then he, then he said, okay, we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. <laughs> right? But, but on the other hand, if you get into talking about where we can go and what the big vision is, he reacts. Ram Shuram is on our board, is a very interesting uh, gentleman. Um, Ram and Ray have a great dynamic. They work they know that they can tell us, hit us right between the eyes, I think, also, and we'll react. Um, we spend a lot of time, we, we give three hours or so to a board meeting, and they take three hours. And, it's, and we come prepared, and we discuss topics, and it goes left, and it goes right. At the You've end, they've never gotten it done in three hours. Yeah, okay, four hours. <laughs> uh, we show a lot. We ask a lot. Um, so in general, the, the camaraderie of the board with each other is important. Also, um, from an advisory capacity, I can call any board member on our board and probably get to anyone in the universe. And their board member is smart enough to know, to advise me, maybe it's a little too soon. And I think I'm smart enough not to ask before it's too soon. Like, what I see a lot of young companies do is, Ray Lane knows uh, the head of ABC. Why don't you go talk to him? Well, well I ask myself, wow, her. her. <laughs> Why don't you go talk to him? I ask myself, well, what would I say? Well, I, I don't have anything to say to her yet. So now I park in the back of my mind, boy, if I had five minutes with the head of ABC, what would I say? And I've got to build a company to get to the point to have that discussion. 
So um, knowing that we basically all I have to do now is build the company to the, get to the intersection to talk to the person and somewhere on this board they'll give me access to that person is really, really the definition of the type of board that I 80 like. 80% of board meetings, and it's, board meetings are not all that important. It's the interaction you have between board meetings and make decisions around right. individuals and all, uh, any decision. But board meetings are 80% spent on the uh, product, spent on the, you know, actually what the company, it could be a staff meeting, actually. Yep. And 20% is on, you know, stuff we have to do. Uh, just as a business, as any business would do, but 80% of it is content that we're reviewing, looking at, fun stuff that's been developed since the last, so they're fun, good fun board meetings. Well, can you believe we ran out of time? And I'm sure all of you can agree this was an incredible treat. I think this was really fabulous, and I learned a tremendous amount. And if you want to listen to it again and again, you can go listen to our podcast of this talk and all the other entrepreneurial thought leader lectures at our website, which is the edcorner.stanford.edu. And I want to thank you so much. Thank you. Can I make one more comment? Hopefully we're still on. Uh, but uh, go to podshow.com. Okay. And just go to podshow.com, and if you have, you know, something really, you know, critical to say, uh, you know, please send it to Ron. Yeah, I'm serious. Or send it to me. If you want to send it to me, I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, if you have something really complimentary to say, send it to Ray. <laughs> but, if you have something. But, you know, just anything that, that helps because you, you know, the diversity in this room and on this network yeah. would be tremendous to get the feedback from. And there's nothing like a new user, nothing like a new audience to kind of look at it and say, you know, you know, I, I don't get why you did it this way. You know, and it just would be helpful. Now, if you just say it's great and I love it and I'm staying, that's, you can say that too. Yeah, that's great. Our love students to have a presentation for you. On behalf of Bases and SDVP, we'd like to thank Ray and Ron for giving us great insight into a company and its investing.